Attention crew, this is your Captain Caliban speaking. This is a supplemental episode of Enterprising Individuals, where we bring you news and tidbits from the world of Trek, also interviews with special guests, and a few little surprises along the way. It's good to be back this week with a regular supplemental episode, but I wanted to remind you that in regards to what we talked about last week, the race that we're running now is a marathon and not a sprint. So please, continue to stay involved in local politics, continue to call your senators and your representatives, tell them how you feel, your city council members, all that good stuff. There's actually a tool on the internet that lets you do just that. You can Google uh, find your representative, and you'll be taken to a .gov that can find exactly who you need to talk to in your area. Keep protesting, keep supporting organizations that support people in need and the causes that we all need to succeed to make a change. Anyway, I'm really excited about today's subject for the show. Uh, two weeks ago, I talked with Jen Dahlman from the Rosemary's Ladies podcast about the Voyager episode Coda, which showcased the life of Captain Catherine Janeway, and it was a bravura acting performance by actor Kate Mulgrew in the episode. And this week, I'll be talking about Kate Mulgrew's first autobiographical book, Born with Teeth, which she literally was, not like you know, 32 of them, which would be horrifying, but you know, it's a metaphor. Um, and we'll talk about that. <laughs> now, now I'm thinking about a baby dentist with like l- little baby latex gloves on a little baby head mirror. But yeah, anyway, um, you may know her only as Captain Janeway or maybe as red on Orange is the New Black as well. But Kate has an exciting and a sweeping personal story and it makes for fascinating reading. We'll be getting right to that. But first, we're going to talk a little news of the Trek, methinks. Uh, there's been a few interesting things going on lately that I thought we could touch on. So we'll get right into that. Stay tuned to the end of the show to get a sneak peek of what's coming up on next week's episode. Brush up your pearly white babies. And with that, let's get underway. I'm sure that you, like me, are desperately missing the public gatherings and the nerd gatherings in particular, including Comic-Cons and conventions. And I think I've talked on the show before uh, about that, but with my Scandinavian fatalism, I feel like I did it to myself. Or maybe I did this to all of us. This was the year, I told myself. This was the year I was going to do everything. Emerald City Comic Con, Chicago, Las Vegas, Shore Leave. I was looking at trying to get into San Diego. And just like that, all cons are kaput. No one's going anywhere. Sorry. Sorry, everyone. My bad. The industry standard thing right now at this point is to postpone your con to next year, but some ambitious conventions are still willing to try and hold their shows in 2020. Uh, The aforementioned Emerald City Comic Con postponed their show to August, which, to be honest, that seemed a little optimistic at the time they announced it in, I think, April. Um, But at this point, that might be a better time to try to squeeze it in if you're going to, because from what everyone says, the COVID is coming back big time this winter. That, however, is a gamble that Las Vegas is willing to take, fittingly, and the Star Trek Las Vegas convention has been pushed from the first week of August to the second week of December. It'll be December 9th through December 13th. And they've changed the venue of the con to Caesars Forum Conference Center at Caesars Palace. And that's like, that's like right on the strip, right? I don't, I don't know anything about Vegas. I've never been to Vegas. And after this year, <laughs> I guess I, I won't have been to Vegas for at least one year. I don't know about this one. Um, I know a lot of people who have said that they are just canceling altogether. They canceled their Trek plans, you know, before the announcement was made uh, that they would be pushing it back. Uh, And even with the new announcement, people are like, "Eh, I still don't really feel safe. 
And I understand that. And a lot of those people are just going to try again next year. I actually had rooms booked in Vegas for August this year, and I was waiting to actually buy the passes. Um, Vegas itself is, of course, already back open, and there is a ton of divided thought on that issue. I'm not really all that worried about, like, getting infected from attending a con. I'm not planning to touch anything or anyone, um, though, you know, it wouldn't just be the con to think about. You're, of course, in Las Vegas with all the travelers from around the world that are coming and going. You know, I already got coronavirus earlier in the year, and I think the conventional wisdom is that you can't get it again, at least for an extended period, but that wouldn't protect anybody I'm traveling with. I think I've said before that Vegas, just as a place, is probably the world's perfect Petri dish, uh, and it would make a great location for any pandemic movie. Uh, doesn't the finale of The Stand take place in Vegas? Uh, mainly, I just don't want to go to a bad con. You know, um, I've never been to STLV, and I've heard great things about it. But if it's going to be poorly attended and all the talent stays away, kind of seems like there's no point in going, you know? Um, I don't know. What do you think? Let me know on Facebook or Twitter or on Discord. Uh, you can find us on social media at E-I-S-T-P-O-D. Are you going to Star Trek Vegas this year? Do you think I should go? I'm curious what other people are thinking about this. Anyway, just because we're all stuck inside doesn't mean we can't have a beautiful ride, biodome or something. Uh, a lot of organizations that usually run physical conventions are taking their events online. In fact, San Diego Comic-Con is holding a virtual event this year with many Trek stars appearing on virtual stages for panels and Q&As, and the event is being organized by Cyric Lofton and Ryan T. Husk, the co-hosts of the Seventh Rule podcast. Uh, it'll run from July 22nd to the 27th, and guess what? It's free just like in the 24th century. The event will feature guests such as Big Breath, Nichelle Nichols, Doug Jones, Nana Visitor, Armin Shimmerman, Alexander Siddig, Sir Lofton, of course, and Hannah Hattay, Robert Beltran, Gary Graham, and Ira Stephen Bear and Robert Hewitt Wolf will be there, and many more. They're also accepting submissions for fan videos that will play during the event uh, online, like um, tributes to Aaron Eisenberg, Renee Abergenois, fan-made videos, music videos, all kinds of stuff. The whole thing will be happening on the Seventh Rule YouTube channel, as well as on the Falling Tower YouTube channel, which I'm not familiar with. I think that's another thing of Ryan's, but you can check it out there on YouTube. The event is free, but they are accepting donations through PayPal and Patreon. And that sounds really cool. And if you want to know more, you can go to virtualtrekcon.com for more info. One event that I was really bummed that was canceled was the unveiling of the statue of Captain Janeway in Bloomington, Indiana, that was being organized by the Captain Janeway Bloomington Collective. They commissioned a bronze bust of the Starfleet captain, which would grace the town of Bloomington, Indiana, her future birthplace. Uh, that event was scheduled for May 23rd, but it had to be canceled because of the epidemic, which was sad. But it did get me out of driving from Indiana, like, immediately after the unveiling to make a wedding in St. Louis the same weekend. Uh, not 100% sure how I was going to pull that off. The good news in this case is that the Bloomington Collective has announced a new unveiling date. October 24th will be the new date. And again, I think, you know, anything this year is a little optimistic. 
you know, it's two weeks before the election. That's going to be fun. But hopefully things will have quieted down at that point. And I know that the organizers are working to reschedule the activities that they had planned with the local science museum uh, that were supposed to happen over the original weekend in concert with the unveiling. So fingers crossed that they can make all that happen. And I'm going to do my best to get to this one. If you're interested, you can find out more at janewaycollective.org online. One more story before we move on. Diversity is on everyone's minds right now. And one of the ways that we interact with the world, especially when we're all inside, is through media and through streaming services. And <laughs> funnily enough, uh, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, which if you are somewhat younger, uh, was a very famous and successful basketball player. Uh, now he's known for just speaking out, being a representative. Uh, also, uh, he's a writer, too. He's got credits on IMDb. Uh, he wrote a documentary, and he co-produced and wrote an episode of the new Veronica Mars reboot, which I, I, I'm blown away. <laughs> I mean, who knew that he had that talent? But I think that's pretty cool. Uh, he published an article in The Hollywood Reporter recently, and it was an article about the kind of shows and films you can watch right now to you know boost your morale and your self-esteem in this this tough time where... I don't know if you can hear it, but there's a helicopter going over my house right now. Uh, you know, things are crazy out there. And if you want to understand more how other people who are different than you live, um, you can do that through some of this work. Uh, and one of the shows that he called out was Star Trek Discovery. Um, he had six shows actually on there, and he said that they were, quote, vastly entertaining and also promoted a positive sense of ethnic identity about who we are and our importance in society. Abdul-Jabbar called out Discovery as quote, consciously diverse and the most creative in terms of storytelling and jaw-dropping plot twists. Uh, he praised specifically Sinequa Martin-Green as the protagonist and also Michelle Yeoh in her two roles, of course, as Giorgio and Mira Giorgio. He called uh, Michael Burnham's uh, career uh, as a Dickensian in its ups and downs. And it's like, yeah, I <laughs> I never thought of that before. That's a great observation. Um I don't think anybody's called out Discovery as being picaresque before, but I can totally see that. The other series that he recommended were uh, The Good Fight on CBS All Access, uh, Giri Haji on Netflix, um, HBO's Watchmen, which completed recently, um, Killing Eve, which is on AMC, and Showtime's Penny Dreadful City of Angels. And three of those six shows are actually created or produced by Viacom CBS, which is kind of cool. And speaking of CBS... CEO of Viacom CBS, Bob Bakish, announced that the company is going to commit $5 million to be divided between several social justice organizations like the NAACP Legal Defense Fund, Amnesty International, uh, the Bail Project and National Bailout, all organizations that need support during this time. And that's pretty cool. Um, <laughs> it, look, I don't have a million dollars. I think it's cool when companies give lots of money. Um, we also know, you know, seeing the earnings report from CBS that um, maybe they don't have a ton of money right now. So, I don't know. I was going to complain about $5 million when uh, Michael Jordan can give $100 million. But, of course, he's Michael Jordan. Uh, this $5 million will definitely go uh, to good work. So, uh, that's pretty cool. Bob Bakish, so far, okay in my book. As far as uh, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar goes, I guess I'm looking forward to more writing from him. <laughs> like... Write a basketball drama, right? Like he wrote a documentary about the uh, Harlem Wrens uh, recently called On the Shoulder of Giants. But he's got to be shopping like 
a dramatic script version of the Harlem Renaissance around, right? Like, I would watch the heck out of that. That one would be a layup. Well, from Captain Skyhook to Captain Janeway, let's talk about Born With Teeth. Uh, I was really excited to get my hands on this book. I'd, um, I'd known it had been out for a while. It came out in 2015, so it's pretty recent still. And I'd actually got to talking with um, Amy Imhoff, uh, who is an editor and a writer um, at Shore Leave, and she was actually on the show uh, last season. And she ended up doing promotional work uh, for Kate Mulgrew's books and thought, this book sounds great. I got to get my hands on this. Um, I am almost complete with my Voyager rewatch. And, you know, gosh darn, I love me some Captain Janeway and I love me some Kate Mulgrew. So let's let's dig into this. And she's got an amazing life. Um, I guess I won't. <laughs> I could just sit here and like give you every anecdote in the book. I'll try not to do that, but um, I'll give you a picture of what her life was like. Uh, you know, she was born. I don't remember exactly where she was born. She grew up um, from a very young age in Dubuque, Iowa. And I was trying to get a sense of like her. Her dad was a contractor, and you can make a lot of money doing that. And her mom was like an artist and a painter. And uh, and their budget is three million dollars, right? Like, what? I was trying to figure out. They seemed like high, the high society of Dubuque, Iowa. You know, she comes from this big Irish family. Uh, she had um, at like eight brothers and sisters, although um, she had a sister that died when she was very young, um, like baby. And she had another sister who um, died of a tumor um, when Kate was heading to college, basically. It's a very, uh, it's a very sad story. Um, her name is Tessie, and it is, um, it's outlined in the, in the book. And I was thinking, like, what's the society of Dubuque, Iowa? I guess there is some. Apparently, her mother, who figures largely um, in the book and is actually um, a big focus in Kate Mulgrew's second book, um, How to Forget. But she paints her mother as this appealing, you know, vivacious figure, um, sort of a romantic. You know, a lot of a lot of this is romantic. I mean, Mulgrew is... I died in the wool romantic, I think. And you see that in a lot of um, her writing and the way that she relates things that happened to her. But um, she also, you know, paints her father as like, you know, this strong, handsome Irish man. And they love each other. And that love endures for a while. But you see, I don't know, you see the sort of um, the, the fractures that happen, you know, in a long-term relationship. And it's, it's all in the book. But uh, apparently her mother was... Her mother was like a friend of Jean Kennedy, like of the Kennedys, like JFK's sister. So if you think like, oh, they grew up in Iowa, like in the middle of a cornfield or something. They had a cornfield. They had 40 acres and this huge house uh, with a name. It was called Derby Grange. Um, but yeah, I mean, they had like these sort of connections still. And her mother would um, tell her stories sometimes about like hanging out with uh, with Jean Kennedy, who became an ambassador later. But, you know, as she, she tells the story of, um, of growing up and basically, you know, um, interacting with all of her siblings, you know, she was the second oldest. She had an older brother. Um, and she always knew that she, uh, she was, you know, defiant and creative, kind of exactly what you'd expect. And she knew that she wanted to act. And her mother, you know, immediately um, encouraged her to do that. And there's this great, um, there's this great story about her um, joining a, like a poetry contest um, when she was in like sixth grade and she was reading her poems, but her mom like slipped her, her favorite poem, like this epic poem called um, the white cliffs. And so as Kate is up there, you know, just a six year or six year old, sixth grade uh, girl 
reading these po- the poems and the audience is full of like, you know, bored people and kids shifting around. And then she gets to this last poem that's not hers, but she just reads it. And everybody's like, wow, that was really great. <laughs> like, she's really good. And on the car ride home, her mom's like, I'll tell you what, kitten cat. She calls her like uh, kitty cat or kitten. Uh, I'll tell you what, like you could either be a mediocre poet for the rest of your life or you could be a great actress because I think that's where your strengths lie. And so Kate, you know, was off to the races as far as far as that goes. Um, we'll get back to her mother, but there's another funny story about after her um, after her eighth child, uh, Jenny was the baby of the family. Um, her mother just told the doctor, hey, once she's out, you just take everything out down there. That's fine. <laughs> In the book, uh, Kate describes it as having her ovaries out, but I'm just assuming she just got the whole thing done. And so she came home from uh, the hospital with her, you know, this last kid. And she like had a jar with her <laughs> that the kids didn't know what it was, but it was, you know, her parts. And she put it up on the mantelpiece. Uh, and the jar said, from whence you sprang, <laughs> which I thought was just like, that's the kind of, uh, that's the kind of lady that her, her mom was. Uh, yeah, she's pretty cool. After that, Kate basically just wants to get out of town. Uh, she really wants to go to the London Academy of Music and Dramatic Art. And she goes over there and uh, auditions, but doesn't, uh, doesn't get accepted. In fact, I think they tell her that she's too young because she's 16 or so. And she's, you know, trying to get out of, um, get out of high school early. But while she's there, she tells this story of, like I said, she's like 16 and she meets, um, I can't remember the guy's name, doesn't matter probably, but she meets this guy who is like the youngest member of the House of Lords and she ends up like going on a weekend with him. Let's just, first of all, let's get this out of the way. Kate can get it. Like Kate has no problem finding uh, a man at any time and she does. She finds a lot of them. And um, is part of that sort of romantic sort of thing. Like she describes them, you know, the, their their qualities, the handsomeness, you know, the masculinity of them. Uh, and she she falls in with this guy who ends up taking her to his palace or whatever. And she spends the weekend there. And her father's calling from home like, Where's, where, get home. Where are you, Katie? But she's like talking to the guy's mom. And they're, they've got some kind of peerage. And the mom's like, how old is this girl? But that's what she does. She just like takes off. And uh, eventually she goes home. She doesn't get the London uh, School of Dramatic Art, but she does get accepted into NYU. And through that, she gets accepted at the Stella Adler Studio in New York. And she starts um, training there. Basically, like her, you know, she's a NYU student technically, but her entire program is all, you know, Stella Adler Studio, which is just like this. You know, they just beat it into you. It's like a two and a half, three year program uh, where you're just getting worked over um, doing all kinds of dramatic stuff. And she meets Stella Adler, who I'm sure has met a million, you know, young girls like Kate. But um, they kind of hit it off as much as you can hit it off with Stella Adler, who's working them really hard. And one of the things that you do, like when you're in this program, is you can't do it's forbidden to do any professional work. Um you get a lot of students, I'm sure, who are, you know, I'm in New York, so I'm going to go read for stuff. I'm going to go, you know, try to get parts and things like that. And Kate's like, <laughs> something else that, like, uh, you learn about Kate in this book is uh, Kate does what Kate wants. Uh, there might be rules. Uh, there might be relationships. There might be, but whatever Kate wants to do at that moment, Kate does. And so she goes out and um, auditions for uh, the role of Emily in Our Town. I think like, uh, I don't think it's Broadway. I think it was just like just off Broadway, but like a, you know, big deal, big theater. 
In addition to this part in our town, she goes out and gets an agent. Um, and she basically like talks her way into this agent's office. Like she makes up the story that they met uh, in the Hamptons or something like that, which he sees through. But he's like, OK, kid, you know, I'll, I'll, re- I'll represent you. And through that, she gets um, Ryan's Hope, which is um, I was actually familiar with Ryan's Hope. It was a little bit before my time, but it was a, a soap, basically, and it ran for a long, long time. But she was sort of there at the beginning, and it's where she, you know, got the, her first exposure. Um, and she was also became friends uh, with Claire Labine, who was the writer and creator of the show, and became uh, good friends with her. Um, and so that's kind of like wh- where she started. And just I'll tell you, like as you know, a former aspiring actor. Screw her. <laughs> like, I mean, she's clearly very uh, successful. And as far as like the whole like what's her background coming from Iowa thing, uh, money has it was never mentioned in this book anywhere. So I'm just assuming it wasn't a problem. And there's actually a anecdote later about she she's always taking trips uh, at every every point in her life to London, to Europe, to Ireland, to different places. And there's one like anecdote where she's flying home uh, on the Concord and eating caviar uh, with the guy that she's like dating at that time. And I was like, (laughs) she just accepts it. I mean, I could totally believe that, you know, Katie Mulgrew always knew that she was going to be eating caviar on the Concord. But I guess I kind of wanted a little more out of the book in terms of I was just this kid with dreams in in Iowa, uh, not knowing that I was going to make the big time. and, you know, I, I wanted to see, like, I wanted to feel the context instead of her just talking about how cool she was uh, on the Concord. But whatever. I mean, she earned it. Um, yeah. So she gets this show and they're actually willing to accommodate her. Uh, another thing that I know as an actor is uh, you get one show and you're kind of locked up. But she was in a play uh, off Broadway at night and she was doing Ryan's Hope during the day. And she told the people at Ryan's Hope She's like, I love theater and I'm going to do theater. And if this conflicts with that, um, I can't do this. And they accommodated her, which is just, it was crazy. I mean, the mister really knew that she was, she was something special and she was what they wanted. Um, she meets uh, a guy named David Bernstein at that time, who was the assistant director for um, this Stratford theater that she's working at. And he eventually becomes a, a big figure in her life. Um, they are together for a while. Um, there's a point where um, her youngest sister, Jenny, comes and visits her. And Kate's in her mid-20s at this point. Jenny's probably like 11 or 12. And it's basically just because, you know, Tessie um, has, has gotten this brain tumor and she's worse and worse and she's just wasting away at home. And so they kind of send Jenny just to go stay with Kate, you know, in the in the Northeast to have fun and, and just kind of get away from this. And while this is all going on, Tessie passes away. And the family immediately wants to, they just basically just bury her. I think, you know, basically like in the book, she says, we just want it over with. Like, this was just so hard for us. And so Kate rushes Jenny home, but can't even go to her sister's funeral. Basically, she's just stuck, um, you know, in New York. So uh, anyway, while she's in New York, uh, she starts a relationship with David. Um, They, he is another, like, he's a rich guy too. And there, uh, she tells a story about how they were um, riding. They, <laughs> it's the life of Kate Mulgrew. Uh, they were in Delaware, uh, kind of near where his parents live, and they broke into a barn and stole some horses. I guess is something that you do. 
Uh, and so they were riding these horses and hers got spooked and she fell and bruised her spine and was actually paralyzed from like the waist down for a couple weeks. And she needed time to recover. And David's like, well, I mean, we can't take you home. So he just took her to her parents, uh, his parents' house. And he was uh, he was Jewish and his parents were like kind of, you know, really orthodox and stuff. And so she she writes in the book, how she could tell that like, you know, mom was like, oh, great, great. And then while at night, like while Kate is trying to sleep, you know, she hears arguing and she kind of sneaks down to hear what the arguing is. And, uh, and his mom is like, you come into this house with this shiksa and you expect me to take care of her. Yeah, it was a bad situation. But eventually she was able to walk again. And she walked into a movie with Richard Burton because Claire Labine wrote a movie called Love Spell uh, that was based on the legend of Tristan and Isolat. And they were going to shoot it in Ireland, and they got Richard Burton. And so, here we go. Katie's off to Ireland. And all through the book, you know, she talks about her Irish heritage, how important it is to her um, that she is Irish, and her um, family uh, really plays that up. And, you know, she always wanted to go, and she goes, and the way that she describes it, you know, is is beautiful. Um, you know, she's there. And also, she's hanging out with, with Richard Burton, which is like, oh, cool. <laughs> That's great. She tells a story about how Richard Burton, like, gives her a mink coat uh, as a present. And I th- her mom came to visit her in Ireland, and her mom's like, you cannot keep that. That's crazy. And she's like, oh, I'll get rid of it, Mom. She did not get rid of it, of course. She, she kept the coat. It's right around this time that she tells the story that becomes kind of the framing story of the entire book uh, about how she it gets unexpectedly pregnant um, with David's child. And... It becomes a, I mean, it's very stressful for her. And it's a situation where she is Irish and she doesn't even consider herself that Catholic. But everybody's like, all right, look, you're like 23, 24. You're an actress. You're up and coming. You're on TV. Get a suspension, you know, let's let's take care of this. And she decided, I'm not going to do that. I I can't do that. I just, um, I, I, you know, I can't. For whatever reason, it's important to me. I want to have this baby, and yes, I will give it away. I want to it to go to a family that needs it, and she makes this decision kind of quickly, and I don't, I mean, a lot was going on, but I don't think she understood how much it would affect her. Um, she ends up talking with um, a lady from, like, the Catholic Charities who's going to set this whole thing up, uh, Sister Una McCormick. I'm not kidding. <laughs> her name is Una McCormick, which I thought was uh, was kind of weird. Um, and she assures her, oh, yeah, yeah, you know, we're going to get him to this family um, in New York. Um, they're, a, they're a great couple. They've been childless, you know, for a long time, and they just really want uh, a baby. And, um, and you know, we'll take care of this. And, we'll, you know, you can write a letter to the kid, but here's the deal. You can't see the kid. And this is standard. Like, you, you know, you'll literally, once you have the baby, it's gone, and then you just can't see it. And she tells the story of um, going to the hospital and having the birth and she i mean even in the 70s uh, this might have been a thing still but they put her under basically right so she's unconscious and she wakes up and she's not in the maternity ward or in her previous room she's in like the cancer ward or something like they totally dump her somewhere else and so she has just had this baby and she is stumbling around like groggy and she makes her way to because katie's gonna do what katie's gonna do uh, that she makes her way to the maternity ward and asks the nurse there, like, uh, my name's Kate Mulgrew. I just had a baby and I'd like to see her. It's a daughter. 
And the nurse behind the desk is like, okay, well, I'll check on that. Looks at a thing, obviously sees, you know, the information and is like, um, that child cannot be seen here forthwith <laughs> or whatever. And Kate's like, please, just please, please let me see this kid. And the nurse is like, okay, okay, come on. And takes her to the maternity ward and pulls up the blinds and Kate gets to see her baby. And, you know, she feels all these feelings that you'd expect. And then, shoot, the blinds come down because, you know, the nurse is nice, but she's not getting fired over this. And that's pretty much it. Like, she, her story separates from that baby for a long time. Um, it's, you know what, it's not a spoiler. You know what happens. It's it's real life. Uh, until uh, it, you know, comes back at the end and forms the um, the basis of the the end of the book. After that, she goes to L.A. and she hits it off there, too. I mean, she's just succeeding wherever she goes. She uh, gets an offer to be on Mrs. Columbo, which is exactly what it sounds like, a cheesy spinoff of Columbo, uh, which unfortunately doesn't succeed that well. But she does it for a little while. Uh, she ends up meeting a man named Roberto Meucci, who is like a um, Italian. <laughs> He's Italian. He's an Italian shoe heir. <laughs> I'm in the wrong circles. Uh, and really, um, she really gets into this guy and she goes to Italy and spends a lot of time with him. Um, they essentially start living together and splitting their time. But he, you know, really loves Italy and wants to be there. His work is there. He designs shoes for this company, which his family owns. And uh, the funny thing about Kate is that. And this this will be addressed later. We'll get to another man, but. She always d describes the joie de vivre, you know, that she feels with these men and, and the amazing things they do. And she describes them as handsome and, and they're, you know, the kind of qualities that she's looking for. But it's never really, she never really, you know, prostrates herself or is really like tearing her heart out over them. And I, that's fine. I mean, I'm not saying that she has to, you know, give up her career. I, I don't think any of these men ever really asked her to give up her career but um but it's like you know it goes on for a little while and you you get to into a pattern you're like katie's gonna get sick of this guy eventually or she's gonna find somebody else and she does uh she ends up uh, in a play um and the assistant like director of the play uh is a guy named robert egan who she ends up marrying becomes her first husband and she has um her two sons alec and ian with him and this seems like, again, this seems like the best thing for her. Like, I'm rooting, you know, I'm watching a soap and it's called Katie's Hope, right? And uh, at this point, I'm really rooting for her because this guy loves theater. Um, they, he's, you know, he's creating shows and he's putting her in them and they're, they're working with each other. And it just seems great. But like a lot of relationships, it just kind of falls apart. And there aren't even, there aren't any reasons given in the book. Like, it just sort of cuts to, her with the boys um, uh, taking a trip and she has to explain to them that, um, you know, daddy and mommy are, are splitting up and, you know, they take it like you'd expect, like they freak out. <laughs> but that's just that's just the way that uh, the way it goes, I guess. There's a great sequence in the book where she describes after her first son, uh, Ian, was born and she is going to go um, with uh, her husband to Alaska Um he is going to direct um, a production of, oh, God, what was it? I think it's like the Philadelphia story or something like that at the Anchorage Rep, which is like, okay, cool. 
Um, and so they go up there and, you know, she's just had, uh, they're in Seattle at this point and, um, they're at the Seattle rep and she's, um, talking to her, like, you know, co-star about their trip and everything. She's like, of course it doesn't fit. So I'm going to have to let this out, I guess. And she goes to the doctor and the doctor's like, yeah, you're pregnant. And she's like, what? I I literally just had a baby. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm Irish, but come on. Um, and so she had Alec, uh, right after that, um, after that things with Robert start to get a little tense, uh, you know, Kate Mulgrew's not a psychologist, but I feel, I don't know, sometimes I don't really, she's delivering everything in sort of vignettes, um, and sort of like specific memories. So I don't know if she knows why some relationships sort of fell apart, but you don't really get a sense of it. And at one point, um, I think she was in Remo Williams or something like that. Or maybe it was like she was on Cheers. She worked with Kelsey Grammer in a play. And then later when, you know, Kelsey was on Cheers, she was like, is there anything going on for, for me? And he's like, oh, yeah, well, let's get you a part on Cheers. So she was on Cheers for a couple episodes. Um, but things kind of fall apart and kind of grow cold between her and Robert. And the, something that you get from this book is like, Kate is, a, she's a singular person. She's a consummate individualist. And... She'll do something, you know, whether you want her to or not, and she may even do it either consciously or unconsciously to aggravate you. And I I totally agree with her in this case, but she bought a house by herself. Uh, and her husband's like, what, uh, what's, what's going on here? Like, you just bought a house. She's like, hey, you know, I, I want us to share finances like any marriage, but, you know, I need to have my own stuff. And so she bought her own house and I, it came in handy um, when they weren't together anymore. But there you go. Um, she around this time, I think she um, hires a private investigator to look for her daughter, um, the daughter that she gave up. And this, like I said, this is kind of a running thing in it. And eventually it will, um, you know, it'll uh, it'll bear fruit. But um, it takes a little while um, during this time. She. Uh, is back in Ireland and her mother uh, has been uh, hanging out with Jean Kennedy or Jean Smith at this point. And apparently she sets Kate up. Apparently when she was in um, Italy, she met this guy named um, Tim, Tim Hagen, uh, you know, like, uh, like the Godfather. And she's like, there's this great guy that I met. You should check. You should go talk to him. And Kate's like, okay, all right, sure. Well, yeah, why not? And she meets this guy for a drink. And at this point, like Kate is, um, uh, she's, you know, in her late thirties and, um, he's in like his late forties, early fifties, I think. But they, the way that she just describes the scene between them is so great because it's so, it's, they, they're like two teenagers. They're like two kids. Um, they end up doing like, um, you know, Godfather (laughs) impressions and scenes and Kate's like doing all the characters from the Godfather and they're, and they're hanging out and they're having a, a great time. And this guy, she will go on in the book to say that this guy is like the only guy that she ever was like, you know, head over heels in love with. Um, And he spends a day with her and like her kids. And, you know, it's just, it's, it's really great for her. Like it's sort of a revelation for her, but he's got to take off because he was actually due at ambassador Jean's house. And ambassador Jean is like pissed off that he's not there. So he's got to get over there. And so they have this wonderful weekend in Ireland, but then he kind of becomes incommunicado after that. 
and Kate starts to get really frustrated over this. And there's a great line in the book about, it tells you a lot, like I said, it tells you a lot about Kate. Uh, but she says, uh, she's turning all this over and she's like, what is it with this dude? And now that I think about it, it's like, uh, it, men are always like, they fall at my feet. Like, where is this guy? What, what the hell? And she says in the book, um, I stared at the payphone and pondered my dilemma. Uh, I had never willingly called a man before in my life. And uh, her mom, I guess, told her, uh, if you ever call a man on the telephone, you'll get cancer of the hand. <laughs> she's like, I can't do this. But but she likes this guy so much that she she calls him and she's like, all right, let's let's meet up. And um, they it's a long story, but like they kind of do, they kind of don't. But they finally sort of meet up and she's like, OK, this is it. Like, this is the guy. And this is like right around the time that she goes and auditions uh, for Voyager in New York. And so she sees this guy and goes and auditions. And there's this famous story about how she went in and she hadn't read it or anything like that. And she kind of did what she says was a really lousy job. And when she's done, she's like, I'm sorry. I just want to tell everybody that I just met the love of my life. I just met this man that I, it's the first time I've ever fallen in love. And so that's what's going on with me. And they're like, okay, all right, lady. Uh, but of course, later on, she gets Voyager and that's great. And there's this sense that like, I don't know. There's a sense about uh, that Tim that he he loves her, but it, 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 the commitment he doesn't like want the commitment. Like he has a, a children from a previous marriage, and he just kind of flakes on her. Um, which I don't know. Maybe it's I, I would be really frustrated with somebody flaking on me, but maybe it's the the chase, you know, or him being unavailable that makes her um, really want to be with him. But that being said, um, Voyager starts succeeding you know she's doing great on voyager and she's a big star again and of course not only just being on a successful uh, show that's launching a network but also it's press 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 right because she's the first female captain of this long-running franchise and so she's doing um you know entertainment tonight and all this stuff she's doing all these like magazines and, and it's just a big deal and i don't know maybe it scared tim away and she tells this story about how, like, the show is succeeding and doing well, and he sends her um, 49 roses because they spent, like, 49 days together or, or something like that. And for her, it's a big mixed message because it's like, are we going to get together then, or is this the kiss-off? But she's got more important fish to fry because because she's trying to track down her daughter, right? The, the PI gets back to her and he says, okay, I can tell you one thing. She did not go to a couple in New York. She ended up in Massachusetts. So Sister Una McCormick is a liar. And she actually ends up, uh, a friend of hers is throwing a benefit, and she actually goes and ends up seeing Una McCormick, Sister Una McCormick, at the thing. And at this point, this is not a 24-year-old. Like, this is a 44-year-old. She basically just rounds on her, and she's like, look, you're going to tell me. You're going to tell me everything you can about my daughter. And she eventually, you know, the sister eventually like relents and gets her to like um, a service or like a thing that, you know, helps you helps biological parents track down on their children. While all this is going on, Tim finally does show up <laughs> and uh, everything works out like they end up getting married uh, and they were married for a while. And they, I think they divorced um, like a year before the book came out, but they had been together for a long time. And uh yeah, it's crazy. And then the whole last part of the book is basically her finally meeting her daughter. She's on set. She's getting ready to start the day of shooting. And she gets a phone call from an agency that's like, yeah, your daughter wants to talk to you. 
And she ends up talking to her daughter, like right there. Like the makeup people are like, where is Kate? But she's talking to her daughter and she arranges, it all goes so amazingly smooth. Like she arranges to meet the fam- uh, to meet the daughter and her family. She goes to Massachusetts, like to Cambridge, I think, um, to meet them. And of course the daughter is amazing. You know, she's a, she's in college or she's going to college. The family ends up loving her. She goes out and like, she hosts a dinner for like the entire family. Everything goes great. And it just seems like it's going to be smooth sailing from here on out. And that's it. Like this came out in like 2015. So I think that she was like, don't give them all the good stuff now. Right. Save, uh, save uh, Orange is the New Black and uh, NTSF SD SUV or whatever. (laughs) Save all that for later. So maybe that'll be in the next book. I don't know. Um, This is I'm so glad I read this. Um, for somebody who has never traveled anywhere, really, it's amazing to just hear uh, about her life and, uh, the amazing things that she's done. And, you know, I, like I said, um, I don't really have any complaints except for, I would have liked a little more, uh, from her or, or, or just a thought from her about the, the difference between just, you know, growing up in the middle of nowhere, Iowa to like being in a castle in, in Ireland. But then again, it's like I said, I don't think money was ever a problem. I think that she always kind of expected uh, this to be her life. Um, And it worked out for her in that way. And then also just her struggling with trying to find love and trying to, um, to, to find her daughter eventually is um, it's a fascinating story. And yeah, um, I would absolutely recommend born with teeth. Uh, Now I want to dig into how to forget because I want to see how the the story turns out. Uh, And if I do, maybe I will talk about it uh, later on the show. If you want to get your hands on Born With Teeth or on How to Forget, you can. They're available on Amazon in physical form or on Kindle. I'll leave a link in the show notes where you can find them on Amazon. When you make purchases on Amazon through the links we provide or by clicking on our Shop Amazon banner on enterprisingindividuals.com to get to Amazon, a small percentage of the purchase price of your transaction comes back to us and no extra cost to you and it helps keep the warp core lit here at the show. And this counts for anything you buy. It's not just Star Trek stuff. You can bookmark our banner, and when you click through to Amazon that way, whatever you buy, the same deal applies. It's a great way to help support the show. Anytime you shop on Amazon.com, click through our banner or through your bookmark or saved link and shop away. And maybe you're saying, look, I've already got Kate Mulgrew's books, and I sang karaoke with her on the Star Trek cruise. To which I would say, congratulations on taking a ride on the last cruise ship that wasn't just torpedoed after the onset of the COVID-19 epidemic. Get to try your luck in Vegas this year? Let me know if you're going, because you seem pretty lucky. But I would also say, if you like what you hear on Enterprising Individuals and you want to support the show, why not head to our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash EISTpod. It's there that you can sign up to be a crew member for the show and you can get access to exclusive subscriber content like our live shows, episode recaps and analysis, extended interviews from show guests containing off-topic discussions and outtakes, and more. And it gives me great pleasure to report three new additions to the USS Enterprising Individuals crew, Ensign Alan Blanco, Ensign Trev and Ensign Josh Wiseman have all joined the crew. Welcome aboard, gentlemen. It's good to have you on the team. If you want to join our crew, head to patreon.com forward slash EISTpod. Anyone can join the crew, luck of the Irish or no, all are welcome at patreon.com forward slash EISTpod. And as always, the best way to support the show is to tell a friend. Anything you contribute to the show will be appreciated and will help keep us flying. Thanks. 
And that's it for this supplemental episode of Enterprising Individuals. If you're an Apple Podcast listener and you haven't yet, why not look us up on Apple Podcasts and make sure that you're subscribed to the show. Also, write us a little review if the spirit moves you and give us a rating at the very least. We'd appreciate it. It really does help the show if you give us a review and a five-star rating. And if you do, I'll read it out on the show. If you're not an Apple Podcasts user, you can still subscribe to the show on Google Play or Stitcher or wherever you get our show from. And if you leave positive comments and ratings and reviews on those platforms as well, we'd be eternally grateful. Next week on Enterprising Individuals. Raiding tombs can be a lot of fun. Just ask Indiana Jones or Alan Quartermain or Lara Croft. Only death traps, creepy crawly creatures, and some kind of laughably solvable riddle stands between you and untold treasure. But like in a lot of treasure-seeking films, the real treasure is the friends we made along the way. But there won't be any treasure left if everybody kills each other. Backtrekking and virtual theater podcast host Gooey Fame returns to the show next week to discuss an episode of Star Trek Deep Space Nine that belongs in a museum. It's the Sword of Kalos, next time on Enterprising Individuals. And until then, I'm your Captain Caliban signing off and saying live long and prosper. Mikan Hana. And I'm Caliban. And we're the hosts of the Sailor Noob Podcast. I'm the expert. And I'm the noob. You're talking into the wrong end of the microphone. Aye, aye. Okay. Every week we watch a new episode of Sailor Moon and learn about monsters, fashion, food, culture, and of course, the Sailor Warrior of Love and Justice, Sailor Moon. All right. Now, what is her rank? Is she an admiral or a rear admiral? Okay, shh, shh. The ad's almost over. We're a couple of magical people, and every week we moon prism power make up a new episode. Please stop that. Sailor Noob is available every Friday on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. Shiver me timbers. Daddy.